Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to finish Matthew chapter 27 today, the Lord willing. If he doesn't come before we get done. But then there's chapter 28. Can you see the light at the end of the tunnel starting to kind of flicker just a little bit, perhaps? The last chapter of Matthew's just around the corner. Matthew 27, and again with verse 57 today. It says, And when even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea, Named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple, he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered, and when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher, now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together into Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way, make it sure as ye can. And they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now this morning we're going to look at the burial of Jesus as we come to this last portion of chapter 27. Now in our study of Matthew's gospel, we have seen from the inspired narrative Matthew's declaration of the gospel even as was read this morning in our scripture reading, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what Paul declared there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. And uh, our Lord Jesus Christ died a voluntary, as, as a voluntary substitute, a vicarious sacrifice, and a victorious Savior. Now, when we think about the death of Christ upon the cross, we should always think of four words in our mind's association with it, sovereignty, substitution, satisfaction, and success. I'd make a good outline for this morning, but that's not it, okay? So uh, uh, that's just something extra there, but it's a good thing to think about. Our Savior died by the act of and in accordance with God's sovereign will. He died as a substitute in the place of God's people, his sheep, those who actually are justified and saved by his blood. And the Son of God did not shed his blood for nothing. He did not die in vain for the multitudes who perish under the wrath of God. To suggest that he did is to make his blood meaningless and of none effect. But by his death upon the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ made atonement particularly and distinctly for his people and effectually accomplished and obtained our eternal redemption. Now, that means that his sacrifice and his death were a success. 
Uh, he should ha- have all that and all those for the, uh, uh, should have for all those, that and all those who, for whom he suffered and died. So that's the message of the gospel. That is how, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, in this particular portion of Matthew's gospel, we have get, been given an inspired account of the fact that he was buried. It says there in uh, in verse chapter fifteen and verse four of First Corinthians that and that he was buried. Our Lord's burial is usually passed over uh, very quickly in most commentaries, uh, even most sermons, uh, and most Bible studies, uh, and even most theological material. Uh, but the Apostle Paul didn't overlook it, as we saw there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Matthew doesn't overlook it here in our text. And it is commonly looked at as being the, the just the necessary event that happened between his death and resurrection. Now we believe the gospel is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The burial is important. Uh, there's a strong tendency to ignore the burial of our Redeemer. Uh, we look upon his death. That was an amazing thing. And it, it really was. And we look properly upon his resurrection. That was another amazing thing. But we should also look upon our Savior's burial as equally amazing. Now, every detail recorded about our Lord's burial uh, included the scheming of his enemies. It's a divinely ordered testimony to the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is exactly who he claims to be, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. Now, once sin entered into the world, into the world, and so death uh, uh, by that sin as its consequence, uh, all the sons of Adam have a destiny with death. Uh, their days are ordained by the Creator. Death grasps us. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about it. But we need to, and we need to realize that death is important. It was the death of Christ that was important, but it's also his burial. Now, no amount of silver or gold or houses or lands can compare to the wonder of being forever in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so death remains for a Christian not a gloomy subject, but one of hope and anticipation because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus not only predicted his death, but also his burial and his resurrection. His burial is verified his death while the resurrection declared the effectiveness of what he had accomplished in his death. Now, Paul explained this in, uh, in his, in the, in this as he gave, gave to us the gospel in there, 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for us, was buried, and was raised the third day. Uh, he appeared before many witnesses. And upon these facts, revealed in Scripture... And applied by the Holy Spirit to our hearts, we hang our hope for eternity. Christ's burial assures us of the good news of his death. And that's why the gospel writers include it in the story of Christ. So we want to look at Christ's burial this morning and how it can be good news. Because it's a part of the gospel, the good news. I want to speak of two particular areas. First of all, the surprising lessons in Christ's burial. Every detail that unfolds before us in the gospel writer's account accounts or bears testimony to the wisdom and power of God. 
The story of Christ's burial offers encouragement to us in relying upon the power of God to accomplish His purpose in our lives. Notice, first of all, Christ uses the obscure. Christ uses the obscure. You search your Bibles, and you look there for Joseph of Arimathea, and you cannot find him except as it's related to the uh, the story of Christ's burial. Matthew tells us who also himself was Jesus' disciple. John says that he was, uh, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. Matthew tells us he was a rich man from Arimathea, a village or a city that no longer exists. And then Mark adds that he was an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. Now Luke also tells us that the same had not consented to the council and deed of them in Luke 23. And so we have before us here Joseph of Arimathea, a respected man, well-to-do, but a secret follower of Christ, at the same time a member of the ruling council of the Jews. Now, though a good and just man, he regularly rubbed his shoulders with the enemies of Christ. He listened to their plots. Uh, He watched helplessly as they consented together to put him to death. And all the while, Joseph maintained a heart for Jesus Christ. He lived as a believer in the midst of a most intolerable atmosphere of hatred for the Christian gospel and of Christ's kingdom. And maybe the most difficult moment as the religious leaders gloated over their success and having uh, Jesus Christ put to death, Joseph went in boldly unto Pilate, as it tells us in Mark. Now his cover is gone. He's no more a secret disciple of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, obscure among the numbers that followed Christ, would be forever known as the man who took care of the body of the crucified Lord of glory. Now let's be honest. It would seem most obvious that either the Lord's family or the disciples that had been with him for three years would have claimed his body. And though the Romans preferred to leave their victims of crucifixion on the cross to decay in the Judean sun, the Jewish law called for the dignity to be shown and even to a criminal. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22 and 23, it says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance." The job normally belonged to the family members that would bury the victim to the public in a public grave of commoners so that their own family burial plot would not be defiled. But with great care and dignity, Joseph honored the body of the Lord. It tells us here, and when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of in the rock, out in the rock. Now, unknown and obscure, though he may have been, Joseph became God's instrument for burying the Son of God as a prelude to his resurrection. And here's what we recognize. God is not obligated to use the notable to carry out his work. 
It doesn't have to be somebody famous. It doesn't have to be someone that everybody knows. It can be someone who's very obscure. Often he receives greater glory through the faithful servant of a few obscure believers than those who are famous, those who are well-known. I believe this fact should give us comfort and encouragement. Shows us that there are some quiet, retiring souls on this earth who know the Lord. The Lord knows them, and yet they're very little known by, by others, by people even in the church or even uh, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the community. Shows us there are different kinds of gifts among the Lord's people. There are some who glorify Christ passively, some who glorify him actively. Uh, there are some whose vocation is to, uh, to help and to really build up the church, the local church, and fill it uh, with people. And there are some who uh, maybe just come forward like Joseph in a time of special need. But each of us are all led by one spirit, and each of us should all glorify the Lord in our different way. We're different people. We have different gifts. We have different ways of serving. And I believe that's part of the lesson here. Now, notice Christ confounds the unbelieving. Now, we've noticed already in our journey through the Matthew's gospel that the religious and political leaders of Israel sought to put Jesus to death. That's been kind of a theme of theirs all the way through. Early in his ministry, they tried it, but they had no success. They could not take his life. He laid it down at the appropriate time as our Redeemer. And he would appear, it would appear, that the opponents of Christ would have been satisfied to see him hanging on the cross and breathing his last breath. He's dead. What more could they fear from one who they called Belial or an imposter or a deceiver? Now Matthew relates their fears. He shows to us what they were afraid of, even after he is dead. Even in the death, Jesus Christ confounds the unbelieving. And so they collectively approach the Roman governor Pilate, and they say, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last heir shall be worse than the first. Now, the first deception that concerned them was the messianic claim of Jesus Christ. They rejected his kingdom. They rejected his rule. Uh, uh, they called him that deceiver. And if that was all that Jesus was, then why should they be afraid? Why should they fear? Why should his disciples be obviously fearful for their own safety and perpetuate a scam that he had risen from the dead? They would only be hounded and hunted for the rest of their lives and persecuted year after year for following Christ. And if all they had was a corpse, what good would that do to convince the multitudes? But these religious leaders were convinced unbelievers. Because they rejected Christ's kingdom and his rule, they certainly rejected the power of his death and resurrection. They had no theology of a crucified, sin-atoning, God-perpetuating Messiah. Being bound by the temporal realm, 
They had no concept of an eternal kingdom of spiritual nature that would spread beyond the boundaries of Israel and encompass the, the entire world. So that was their first deception. The second deception, that if they could get his body, Jesus' disciples would claim that he had risen from the dead. Now what good would a corpse do to shore up a crumbling religion? How could these disciples convince the skeptical people of Israel that a a dead person was now alive, if indeed seeing the resurrected Christ would not even phase them? Would they keep up the story only to suffer imprisonment and death? Well, on the contrary, it was the certainty of the resurrection that made the disciples willing to suffer imprisonment and death. Paul put it in this way in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even into bonds, but the word of God is not bound. There's a strange irony here in this particular portion of Scripture. The unbelievers feared that Jesus might really rise from the dead, while the believers feared that he wouldn't. Jesus Christ confounded the unbelievers by bursting forth from the grave and dispelled the fears of believers by the power of his resurrection life. But then thirdly, notice Christ triumphs over his opponents. How do you make sure that someone does not rise from the dead? Obviously, if it is going to happen, then whatever puny efforts man can expend to stop it would come up very short, but we must give it to the religious leaders. They did their best. And in doing so, they unwittingly gave convincing evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Now, wanting to involve the Roman government to make sure that no one stole the body of Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees asked Pilate to secure the grave. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. Sounds like cynical statement from Pilate. He said, you know, you're so afraid of this man while he was uh, alive. Now that he's dead, you're still afraid. By all means, secure the the tomb as tightly as possible. If you think that's going to help, use your own guards. So they did. It says, and they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, archaeological evidence reveals reveals a number of graves in this region that had this track cut in it uh, for a rock to roll in front of the opening. A large round stone could be rolled to secure the the, the grave. It was no small thing to move it either. It It was huge. And with Joseph of Arimathea being a rich man, having a tomb in this garden area, he likely had the one with such a stone. Because we see here Matthew's comment, a comment, he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Now, that was there probably to keep out the animals and the bandits that would rob even the linen wrappings covering the bodies in the grave. And additionally, the opponents made sure that maybe they attached some kind of rope across it. Maybe they tied a rope around it. They maybe sealed it somehow. I don't know what, it doesn't tell us exactly how that, that what was done. But they posted some temple guards in front of the tomb and a ragtag group of fearful disciples who only owned two swords among them would surely not be able to overcome these obstacles and remove the body. 
But that's just the point that the gospel writers are making, isn't it? What the chief priests and Pharisees did in securing the tomb offers irrefutable evidence that no one could be able to disturb the body of Jesus Christ, at least by a natural means. You consider what that the multitudes had turned against Jesus just prior to his death, and the very fact that his death was as a criminal would have been uh, dissuading, them, dissuading them from even the thought of following him. And knowing that he claimed, uh, knowing to claim loyalty to him would mean a similar fate. They would probably be crucified too if they were loyal. The idea of an unruly mob, scarcely armed disciples would have stolen it. That seems preposterous, doesn't it? So Jesus Christ triumphed over his opponents. And he continues to do so throughout the ages. He's doing it today. He's still triumphing over his opponents. Now, it may not look like it sometimes. But we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today, and he still is the victorious one. He still has triumph over his opponents. I trust you firmly believe that. But there's a second thing here. Significant declarations in Christ's burial. There's some significant things that we need to to look at just briefly here. As Paul presents it in the summary of the Gospels, and uh, even as we see it here in our text, uh, a few truths that are significant in reflecting upon the burial of Jesus Christ. Number one is, Jesus really did die. He really did die. You know, there are people today, or have been over the years, have said, well, he didn't really die. He just kind of fainted or swooned. You know, No, he really did die. And that's very significant. Because the burial is a kind of certificate of death. The burial, the, him putting in the, that's really his certificate of death. While the Roman soldiers had already affirmed the death of Christ, the Jews would easily have spread rumors to the contrary in an effort to claim that Jesus did not really die. There are even some in our day who've claimed that the death of Christ was not an actual death. When you consider the fact of his entombment, After being wrapped thoroughly in linen wrappings, covered with burial spices, there's no doubt left concerning his death. The sealed tomb would have had only a small amount of oxygen, certainly not enough for a man to survive for three days. Joseph and Nicodemus, in handling the body of Christ, would have also recognized that if there was any life left in him, as they picked him up and they rolled him and they handled the body, they would have noticed they were risking their reputation and their future in Israel by caring for the body of Jesus. They certainly would not have done that to a fainting man and putting a, a, a live man in the tomb. And so the burial signified a public notice that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was dead. And for us who have are the beneficiaries of his death, it is a public notice that when Jesus said, It is finished, then it was finished. And our whole salvation is bound up in his the vicarious death of Christ. He died so that we might live. But if he never died, if he only fainted and then revived, then there have, has been no satisfaction made before God for our sins. Our salvation is, is not, not there. 
It was just useless bloodletting. If there is no death, then we're not redeemed. If Christ didn't die, we're not saved. There's no offering for sin through the death of Christ to condemn sin in the flesh. If there had been no death, then there's no resurrection. And so, if there's no resurrection, we have no hope. Our Lord's burial stands as a testimony. As I said, it was his certificate of death. Publicly letting people know Jesus really died. Secondly, we see here Scripture is truly fulfilled. And just as the other facets of our Lord's passion are foretold, we see the prophecies, even his burial was prophesied. The whole concept of a suffering servant has its roots in the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And though the Jews anticipated a political Messiah, rather than a suffering servant, it was not because of the failure on the part of the Old Testament to address this issue. Instead, it was their desires of getting their own way for redemption. In Isaiah 53, we find the prophet foretelling the atoning death of Christ. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The language there pictures the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in our behalf. It was not, he was not bearing his own sin because he had none. He was not pierced through with judgment for his transgressions because he had never broken the law. We deserve the judgment he bore. Our iniquities fell upon him by divine mercy, and God's wrath was satisfied by his sacrifice. Isaiah goes on in his description of the Messiah in verse 9, and he, he made his grave with the wicked. He made his grave with the wicked. When a man was crucified, particularly for sedition, he was not, it was not according to the normal dignity that you give ordinary citizens in burial. These criminals were carried out of the city to a common grave and lumped together for burial. And that's what Isaiah meant by the phrase, his grave was with the wicked. Now normally since Jesus was crucified, he would have been a part of a common grave of wicked criminals. But Isaiah continues his prophecy some 800 years before the death of Christ and says, and with the rich. In his death, he was made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What was Joseph of Arimathea? He was a rich man. And he was put in a special, his own new tomb. That was not a common grave for criminals. But this had been prophesied 800 years before it actually took care, uh, happened, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Uh, the rest of the verse says, The exception to the normal burying of criminals took place at the request of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, as he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now there's another text that addresses the burial of Christ found from the lips of our Lord. 
Pharisees asked him for a sign, and he had told them in, back in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, For Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus used the story of Jonah as a parallel of what was going to happen to him. He had offered himself at the cross to assuage the storm of God's eternal judgment, just as Jonah was cast into the sea to take care of God's wrath in the storm. Jonah was buried three days and three nights. And so would our Lord be buried as a prelude to the resurrection. You see, every detail that we find in the Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. That was a prophecy. Those are uh, uh, things that were written over a thousand year period of time. And it remains accurate to the finest detail. A God who can do that can surely be faithful in his promise to save all who will come to Christ in repentance and faith. We need to take courage by the faithfulness of God's word. But then there's a the last thing we notice here, and that is, that's significant, and that is believers are buried with Christ. The Bible declares he died for our sins. Was his death sufficient for all of our sins? Uh, were there any of his uh, any sins that did not come under the authority of his atoning work and his saving power? I believe this is one of the great significant truths related to the burial of Christ that we need to see. For many believers endure agonizing times and they fret over their past sins. They think, oh, I could never be forgiven. I've committed such terrible things. Uh, did God really die for all of my sins? Has he forgiven all of them? And they worry about it, especially wicked sins that might surely be a stench in God's nostrils. But our text says in verse 59 and 60, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher. And you add the the explanatory words of Paul in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What a wonderful picture is stated in the scripture, and what a wonderful picture we have in the New Testament church ordinance of water baptism. Every sin that Jesus bore has received the righteous judgment of God at the cross. And as our Lord was buried, so every sin that we have committed was buried. When we follow Christ in baptism, we are showing that all the oldness of our sinful lives apart from Christ has been buried with Christ. And that which is raised is a new man, one that has experienced the power of death and resurrection. And Paul insists on pointing this out as he builds his case for a personal holiness there in Romans chapter 6. He's teaching that all who are in Christ were vicariously crucified and buried and resurrected. And when the to, uh, visitors to the tomb made their way to the opening on that wonderful, glorious resurrection morning, 
They did not find a pile of sins laying there, okay? They were gone. Finished. There's no penance due to finding satisfaction for agonizing sins, nor are there any demands of works and service that would remove them. All the condemnation claimed by our sins was faithfully put to death in Christ at the cross, and then he was buried, and so were our sins. And when he was raised by the glory of the Father, he no longer carried our sins along. Our sins were left at the grave, never to require judgment again and never to burden us again. I think it's John Bunyan who captured this in his classic allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you have no doubt read that. But let me remind you what he said. Throughout the early portion of the story, the pilgrim is traveling with a burdensome load on his back, a load that he could not shed by his own power. And he says this, Now I saw in my dream that highway up which Christian was to go, was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. And up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble and so continued to do until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher and it, where it fell in and I saw it no more. Have you left your sins at the tomb? You know, many times we say, bring your heavy burdens to the cross. But have you left your sins at the tomb? There your burden is left, never to bear it again. Even as Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was crucified and buried. And we who are in union with him by faith were crucified and buried with him. But death could not hold Christ. He arose from the dead. And in the triumph of that resurrection, we too shall live. The finality of his death is made clear by his burial, just as the triumph is declared by his resurrection. That's the gospel. Have you believed the good news in Christ this morning? Let's pray.